invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of John at the beginning of the New Testament, chapter 9. John chapter 9. I'm going to read the account of a man that Jesus healed who had been blind since he was born. And this covers the entire chapter. We, uh, one of the things that we have not paid attention to in the history of the church is the public reading of Scripture. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, give careful attention to the public reading of Scripture. Uh, rarely does it play a very prominent part in many of our churches and in our worship. I know probably a number of you have Matthew Henry's commentaries, right? How many of y'all have a copy of that? Matthew Henry's, you know, most of them. Well, it may surprise you to know those were not sermons he preached. Those were comments he made during the public reading of Scripture. And that's what you're reading in those commentaries. So I want to read all of chapter 9. I don't plan to make comments. Um, but listen carefully uh, to this that John records for us. Hear God's word. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begged, begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how, can, how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Let me lead us in just a moment of prayer. Our Father, you tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We have hungry souls. We ask that you would nourish us now. In Christ's name, amen. Some, through the years, some of the dearest faithful members of this congregation have gone through severe suffering. In the years I've been here, numerous members have suffered in car accidents, contracted terrible diseases, and in some cases it has taken their lives. Why? You may not know if you don't have children, but we have a special needs nursery in this church. And we have a number of children who are part of this congregation who are severely disabled. Why? John Owen was a great Puritan theologian. He became the vice chancellor of Oxford University in the middle 1600s. He was the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. He married his adoring wife, Mary Rook. She gave birth to 11 children. Ten of them died in infancy. Of all their children, only one survived to live to about 25 years of age, and then she died. Why? We could go on and on, stating examples of how bad things do happen to God's people, to the Lord's people, to the best of Christ's disciples, and why, we ask. And that is a question of theodicy. Do you know that word? T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. That means to practice theodicy is to attempt to justify the ways of God to men and women. That's what theodicy is. That's what the book of Job is. That's what's happening in this conversation with the disciples. With this man who was born blind, and the disciples are attempting to come up with an answer as to why this man was born blind. Whose sin was it? We'll look at that in just a moment. Let me tell you what's happening in the Gospel of John uh, to set the stage of this. And we find out from the previous chapter, chapter 8, that the, uh, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish lawyers of the day, uh, they had brought to Jesus a woman who had been caught in adultery. You know the story, and they said, hey, the law of Moses said that anyone caught in adultery must be put to death. Here she is. What do you say, Jesus? They did this to trick him, to force his hand in some way, and that's when he responded, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. 
Then he goes, after that occurrence, he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and there he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. The Pharisees are angry, and they call him a liar on the spot. Then later in the chapter, in verse 28, he says to the religious leaders, this is how direct it was, it was getting, the tension. You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, that is the Messiah to come, you shall die in your sins. So they are saying, who are you? And he says, I've been telling you who I am from the beginning. Then in verses 31 to 59, the, the tension reaches a peak, and they go through the roof in verses 56 to 59, and they're ready to stone him on the spot. They're ready to kill him because he's claiming to be God, and they know it. And now we come to chapter 9 and the healing of this blind man. It's in four brief scenes. The story has four scenes. Here's scene one, and that is the encounter or the meeting with the blind man. And John, as he writes his gospel, he tells us at the end of the gospel, he writes to us so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ and that we might believe. But he wants us to note some things about this occurrence when Jesus meets this blind man. First of all, it was a Sabbath day, and that is so important. The Jewish Sabbath was the last day of the week, what we call Saturday. There had already been controversy with the Pharisees about Jesus and the Sabbath day and his attitude toward it. And now it is as though Jesus is going out of his way to do something on the Sabbath day, to make a point. And if you read John's Gospel, he points out that this issue, the Sabbath, will ultimately be the issue that brings Jesus down. It's the tension over the Sabbath that ultimately leads to Jesus being crucified. Because that's the issue that just burns up the Pharisees and the way he deals with observing the Sabbath. We'll see that in a moment. Second, we see the question by the disciples. John points that out. In the ancient cultures, like many cultures today, if you were blind, especially from, from a young age or at birth, you had no choice but to be a beggar. You know, the very few trades a person like that could learn in that day or to care for themselves or they basically were dependent on begging. And so here's this man, and he's begging by the side of the road. And Jesus perhaps speaks to him. Uh, he's there. And then the disciples have this question, uh, Lord, why is he blind? Uh, what, what's the deal? Was it because of his sin or the sin of his parents? Now, people tend to believe that displeasing God leads to God's punishment. And therefore, they assume that whenever a person suffers, then there must be some kind of, that must be some kind of punishment for some sin that they've committed. That was the theology of Job's friends. If you were here a year ago, I preached uh, five or six sermons from the book of Job. We tried to look at that in detail. That was their theodicy. That's how they were trying to explain the ways of God to men and women. They said, come on, Job, fess up. You've done something because this kind of suffering that he had been through does not happen to innocent people. That's where they were coming from. And we do the same, don't we? Things are not going well, some difficulty, some trouble, and we say, I must have done something bad. God is punishing me. I knew I should have tithed last month. 
Oh, I'm just not consistent in my devotions. Look what's happening. It's second nature for us to think that way. And that's the way the disciples were thinking. But sometimes our suffering is the result of sin. It's a direct result of sin. If you can get behind the wheel of a car, ignore the speed limit, and just drive 100 miles an hour around a curve where the speed limit's 35 miles an hour, and you crash the car and you destroy that and you hurt yourself, it'd be pretty safe to say you're, the results, you're suffering right now, uh, is a result of your sin, of violating the law. But on the other hand, sometimes our suffering is due to our sin. Sometimes it's due to someone else's sin. What if you were driving that way and run into an innocent bystander? Their suffering then is a result of your sin. Our suffering goes back to the sin of Adam. Uh, but most of the time we will never know why we are going through those things. And so they present two alternatives in their mind. Either this man sinned or his parents sinned. No indication they are speaking to the man, only about him. Do you ever notice that? Do you ever do that? Let me ask you not to. If you see someone in a wheelchair, don't speak to the person. Don't ignore them and speak to the person with them. Like, do you think he's hungry? You know who's wonderful with this? Our son doesn't speak. He's 13. It's African-American women. They will talk to him in Kroger going through, going out the checkout line. Hey, Stephen, how are you today? Good to see you, buddy. Uh, he doesn't talk. I know that. How are you, Stephen? I just go on and on. Well, this man, I am sure, was used to hearing conversations about him, but rarely someone speaking to him. And so he's a philosophical question for the disciples. They're thinking, what caused the blindness? When Jesus said, I come, that they might have life and have it abundantly, abundant doesn't mean easy. <laughs> And it certainly doesn't mean painless. And when we're told in Romans that we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, it doesn't say all things are good. Often they're very bad. They're very painful. It just says God causes them to work together for good. Some of the things are awful. They're terrible. But God is powerful enough to cause them to work together for good. Does anyone here remember the name of Chet Bitterman? Chet Bitterman was a missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Back in the late 1970s, early 80s, I can't remember, 1980s, I can't remember the exact year, he was kidnapped in South America and he was held for ransom. And they, his kidnappers were hoping that uh, Wycliffe or some American organizations would cough up the money to release Chet so he could be reunited with his family. I was a part of a church that time. I was a student in seminary. We prayed every week at our services for the release of Chet Bitterman. This went on for months. Finally, the day came. News came out. He was not released. They had taken him once the demands were not met. They took him and they murdered him and left his body in a bus to be found. They gave the location. His kidnappers did. Awful, terrible things. We prayed for months and it didn't happen. God did not spare his life. But the next year, do you know that applications to Wycliffe Bible translators doubled? Now, I don't know what was in the mind of God, and I certainly never try and tell people why God is doing that, because we don't know. But that's an interesting observation. The third thing we notice here is Jesus' response. Some of our suffering, like the trials of Job, are for God's glory. And Jesus has one question on his mind in response to the disciples. Lord, was it this man or his parents who sinned? 
All Christ is concerned about is this is for the glory of God. How can God be glorified in this situation? And I would suggest to you, this is a pastoral note. When you go through difficult or are going through difficult times, rather than literally wasting your time thinking, now why did this happen? It's good to maybe have those fleeting thoughts, and if God wants you to learn from it, the main question to ask is how can God most be glorified in this situation? I wish my mind automatically on default went to that position with any problem, but that's where Christ went. How can God most be glorified in this situation? That's scene one, the meeting of the man. Now quickly, the second scene, the healing of the man in verses 6 to 12. Why Jesus did what he did, we don't know. There's much speculation. But he spits on the ground. He makes mud with the saliva. He puts it on this man's eyes. He sends him off and says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam had been built years before by King Hezekiah. It was a pool at the end of a 600-foot-long tunnel that had been tunneled through rock to bring water there. And so he sends him there to this very public place. And all verse 7, talk about an economy of words. All it says is, So he went away and washed and came home seeing. Imagine his excitement. Just imagine. We don't know how old this guy is. We know he's not called a child or a boy. And scripture does that when they're young. He's called a man. Let's just imagine he's 20. Let's just pick that age. Say, all right, about 20 years old. I read from the Los Angeles Times a number of years ago about a woman named Anna May Penica. Penica. She married a man at age 40. She, at age 47, married a man that she met in a Braille class. She had been blind since birth. They were married for 15 years until he, though he had done the seeing for both of them, then he completely lost his sight. So around age 61 or 62, they're both blind now, married, as they are married. She had never seen the green of spring or the blue of a summer day. Yet she grew up in a loving, very supportive family. She was remarkably cheerful. And then a doctor named Dr. Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of UCLA performed a very rare surgery to remove the congenital cataracts from the lens of her left eye. And for the first time at age 62, she saw. 